This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Becky Morgan, Randy Pond, Lisa Sonsini, and Silver Lake. Special thanks to our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Friends of Sing Kong, Friends of Webb McKinney, Eris Communications, Deloitte, and HP Inc., and to our Truth, Love, and Reconciliation Dialogue Series sponsor, Destination Home. Welcome to the Dialogue. I'm super jazzed about diversity and inclusion and my, and my excitement often pushes people back, but, uh, not Michelle, uh, she stuck with it and we became fast friends. Uh, I devoured her book, the fix. Uh, and since then we've been, you know, talking a lot about innovations, uh, in the way that folks approach, uh, diversity and inclusion, uh, in the workforce. Um, I think Michelle is one of the more innovative thinkers uh, I've ever met, and I think you'll agree at the end that her approach to creating equity uh, in the workplace and, and beyond is, is uh, new, uh, elegant, and uh, kind of fun. So for those of you who are new to ALF, because I know that this isn't um, uh, solely restricted to senior fellows, uh, welcome. Uh, ALF is an organization uh, that has about 10 chapters across the United States. Uh, if I understand it correctly, close to 4,500 senior fellows, and these are leaders of leaders from across the United States. Um, we're going to give you all a chance to get out into breakout rooms. Uh, you guys are going to have a chance to dialogue with each other. Um, and so hopefully you can build some close connections. I'll be here throughout the way and Michelle's uh, gonna share her knowledge as well too. So with that, I think what I wanna do is, is hand it over to, to Michelle uh, to you know, introduce herself a little bit briefly, but then start her keynote. Thank you, thank you so much, John. Um, it's such a privilege to be here today and to be here with all of you. Uh, so first off, I just wanna thank you all for gifting me your time. I know how invaluable that is. And I um, wanted to actually share where my journey began. So I've been researching how inequality works in organizations for the last 10 years. I am, uh, I run my own business, the Quality Forward link to my theory of change and how you drive cultures that value difference, what I call cultures of equality. And my journey really began about 15 years ago when I was a manager for the first time in a large multinational organization. And I walked into the kitchen at work <clears throat> and my boss is standing on the other side um, of the kitchen and it's pretty packed. It's lunchtime. People are, you know, doing what people do in kitchens at lunchtime. Um, a lot of men because it's a male dominated organization. And all the people who report to me are sort of standing around my boss chatting with him. And he picks up a kitchen tea towel and he kind of puts it into a ball and he throws it across the room and it hits me in the face. And it was quite comical, I guess, at the, at the moment. Um, and then he says, hey, Michelle, you're a woman. Why don't you wash the dishes? And it was like one of those scenes in a movie where it just goes quiet. And everybody's looking at me thinking, how's she going to respond? And that was the moment I realized it didn't really matter that I was on my fifth degree. It didn't really matter that I had more experience, high performance ratings. None of that mattered because my difference was forever going to be a barrier to my advancement at work. And it was going to be the reason I would be continually devalued in this organization. 
And so that was the moment I wanted to understand what is it about the way workplaces are hardwired that creates inequality? And how can we create environments where we not only bring diversity into them, but more importantly, we value the diversity once it's in the organization. And so that began my journey of researching it. And it's been a pretty hideous journey of reviewing over 3,000 academic journal articles, having over 72 interviews, each an hour and a half long with over 100,000 data points. But I can finally say that I understand how inequality works. And the message I have for all of you today is that this is not a women's problem, a men's problem. This is an everybody problem because here's the thing about these inequality moments. And I want you to think about what yours might be because research shows pretty much most of us, 96% of us at any one point have witnessed or experienced inequality in organizations. And it's those lived experiences like my kitchen tea time moment that make up our lived experience of organizational life. So those moments matter. Those are culture defining moments. And the reason inequality is everybody's problem to solve because one of the most interesting research findings that's out there, and I don't know why we don't talk about it enough, is that simply witnessing inequality, so the men standing around the kitchen table who didn't say anything, witnessing it has the same detrimental impact on your mental and emotional well-being as if you yourself had experienced it. So I just want everyone to clock what I'm saying. So witnessing inequality has the same detrimental impact on your mental and emotional well-being as if you yourself had experienced it. This means inequality is our shared problem to solve. And why is it that it has the same detrimental impact? Because nobody wants to feel that their difference is potentially a opportunity or threat um, for their organization to discriminate against them. It creates this imbalance in terms of psychological safety. People don't feel safe to be themselves. They don't feel like they're going to be valued for that. So it eats away at culture. Those moments add up and they matter. So when it comes to understanding the context that we're working in, in most organizations, it's pretty fair to say that current DNI solutions are not working. And I don't say that lightly. I say it having research, particularly in the United States, with SHRM, we did a survey of over 832 human resource executives who work in the DNI space and asked them questions about, you know, how effective are these DNI initiatives? And most around sort of 60 to 70% said current solutions like unconscious bias training, like women focused um, recruitment targets, like maternity leave, paternity leave, having a minimal impact at best. They don't result necessarily in sustainable long-term changes to inequality. And I think it's really interesting that annually, according to McKinsey, you know, we spend about $8 billion on DNI initiatives, yet at any one time, 40% of employees feel isolated, feel excluded, feel discriminated against. So clearly what we're doing isn't matching the outcomes we want to solve for. And for me, you know, this really hammers home the point that DNI initiatives are not only failing our organizations, but they're failing men and women. So when we think about um, current DNI approaches, they tend to be split. They tend to be focused on what I call fixing women or individual-focused solutions like women's only networking, women's only development programs, women's only coaching, mentoring, sponsorship programs or they focus on sort of the policy and process level of an organization. So what hiring policies can we put in place? What hiring practices can we put in place? But we can't think our way out of inequality. It's a lived experience. And so that's why, you know, my research I replicated with SHRM, you know, the Corporate Leadership Council did the same survey 
back in 2005 and found the same results. So more than a decade later, nothing's really changed. And so DNI initiatives for me aren't solving the problem of inequality because they don't actually understand what the problem is they're trying to solve for. And if you don't believe me, go and ask your DNI teams, go and ask leaders, more importantly, hey, how does inequality work at work? And chances are most people won't be able to explain that to you. To be fair to everybody and let you off the hook, I didn't understand it. It's actually quite simple and took me a very long time to understand. So hopefully today you'll get a sense of, you know, how does inequality work in organizations? And put really simply, and this is going to be embarrassingly simple, but organizations were never designed for difference. So if we go back into the history of organizations and we look at the 1950s, the industrial era, where you have a command and control transactional way of leading. And everybody's treated in the same way because by and large, everybody is the same. And so in those organizations, what matters in the industrial era? Efficiency, you know, effectiveness in terms of having very hierarchical at command and control operating structures. A lot of the theories, the management theories like Taylorism inform those structures. And what happened is the idea, the shared perception of what good looks like, what I call success prototype, that shared perception was born back in the 1950s. The problem is research finds when we look at organizations today, we're now in the innovation economy, we have a hangover of that shared perception. And so when we research finds, when you think about what does good look like in organizations, by and large, most organizations, what you will think of is a white, middle-class, heterosexual, able-bodied male. But much more importantly than the demographic characteristics, what we associate, what our shared perception of what good looks like, tends to be somebody who's dominant, assertive, aggressive, extroverted, you know, who's willing to make work the number one priority at the expense of everything else who's free from dependent care responsibilities and is willing to engage in some exclusionary behaviors to get ahead. That is the shared perception of what good looks like. And research finds, even by the consulting firm Bain most recently, that around 95 to 97% of all organizations still have a deeply embedded prototype, right? The shared perception of what good looks like. Why does that matter? Because when leaders lead in a way that's aligned to the shared understanding of what good looks like, to be seen as competent, that encourages employees to do the same. And that then creates the entire lived experience of the organization that represents the success prototype. So let's go back to my kitchen example. What my boss was doing was actually engaging in prototypical behaviors. One of which is you know, engaging in some of those negative sort of exclusionary behaviors to be seen as powerful, to be aligned to that idea of what good success competence looks like. And so what we see in organizations is the lived experience of organizations is a direct result of leadership. This is the hardest thing for people to grasp. People's experience of inequality in your organizations is a direct result of your leadership. And that is because leaders drive culture through the behavior they reward, endorse, support, ignore. And, you know, that then creates culture, creates the lived experience of inequality. So leaders drive culture, culture drives experiences of inequality. So what's the goal? What's the aim when it comes to prototype-based organizations? And how does it create lived experiences of inequality? The aim is to shift to what we call value-based organizations, where you're really clear about what good looks like, but you give people the freedom to display that value in a way that works for them. So not the corporate speak sort of nonsense values, where people just say it, most people can't remember their company values, but the implicit 
value that people associate with what good looks like as a practice. So for example, I worked in an organization where curiosity was a practice and it was a shared implicit value. But how people displayed that was to be extroverted, dominant, assertive in meetings, and that then devalued difference. So you weaponize the value to actually filter out difference, the unhelpful, right? Because you're actually aligning it to a success prototype. But I've also worked in other organizations where they say that we value curiosity because we don't want people to be attached to outcomes. We want them to be open to outcomes. We want to harness the value of diversity. We want to innovate. And curiosity can be asserting yourself in meetings, but it can also be being quiet and listening and practicing sort of curious listening. It can also be sending an email. It can also be having a one-on-one. So companies all too often weaponize their values to reinforce the prototype rather than being very clear about what good looks like. And I work with a lot of big organizations and the thing I find consistently is almost quite shocking is when I ask boards or leadership teams, hey, what does good look like as a set of leadership practices in this organization? They don't have a shared understanding of that. And all too often when it's not explicit, we default to the prototype. So the goal in organizations to drive a culture of equality where we value difference is to have the shared perception of what good looks like very clear as aligned to a set of values. So that's how inequality works in organizations and how it creates barriers to people's advancement or those lived experiences like my kitchen example is the more you as an individual differ from the prototype, the more barriers you're likely to encounter trying to advance at work. So difference compounds or intersects to create sort of more more barriers and more difficult barriers to overcome. And I want to share a quick example with you. So I'm a white woman. I have my whiteness in common with the prototype. But at the same time, obviously, my gender is in conflict. So how did that create a barrier for me? Well, one of the first challenges women encounter when we enter organizations is we see the shared standard of what good looks like being the success prototype. And we know that to be aligned to that, to be seen as competent, we've got to engage in the behaviors associated with it. But society says to be seen as competent, you've got to engage in gender stereotypical behaviors. So being meek, mild, unassuming, all the attributes we associate sort of with maternal roles, right? And so the two in direct conflict, so to be seen as competent, you've got to engage in prototypical behaviors. To be seen as likable, you've got to engage in more sort of feminine, stereotypically feminine behaviors. So for women, there's absolutely no right way to be a woman at work. And so role conflict is one of the first challenges women encounter, and it affects everything from perceptions of women's competence, access to promotions, even at the hiring stage, simply being seen as leader-like and competent. You know, if you're more feminine, less likely to have that. Now, likability and competence are both really important. Well, how does difference compound that experience of inequality? Well, let's think about the experience of black women in organizations and the fact that you now have potential to not only trigger sort of that gendered standard for what good looks like, being feminine and likable if you're a black woman, but also racial stereotypes. So for a black woman, if she was to assert herself in a meeting, she could potentially trigger being less likable because now she's not engaging in feminine behaviors and also potentially triggering racist stereotypes like the angry black woman stereotypes. So difference compounds the barriers, it compounds that lived experience of inequality in organizations. And so that's how inequality works. The more you differ, the more challenges you're likely to encounter trying to advance at work. And just for some context, my research found, you know, there's 17 barriers women experience throughout their careers. But importantly, white men 
face numerous challenges as well. We'll come to this in a minute. So when you're making the shift from, you know, prototype-based organizations to value-based organizations, you're really trying to shift that shared perception of what it looks like. And I just wanted to share the slide. I know it's a little hideous, but just on the right-hand side in the blue section there, as to, you know, what some of those values look like for value-based organizations. So typically these values enable environments that value difference, right? And so we typically see those are the values that are associated and typically prototypical organizations tend to include in that purple section, you know, a lot of that dominance, assertiveness, command and control. So that, and we've got an exercise in a minute, so you'll see the slide again in terms of the shift you're trying to make. So we'll come back to it. I think the central message from me is that success discriminates and it discriminates based on who most closely fits that prototype. How does this show up in organizations? Well, again, embarrassingly simple, 10 years, this is all I've got. But it shows up in four important ways in organizations, in terms of your policies, your processes, your shared practices that you engage in, your behaviors, and your shared belief about what good looks like at work. So DNI initiatives fail because they really focused on the policy and process level. We can't think our way out of inequality because inequality is a practice. It's a verb, right? It's something that we do. And so that's why organizations, you can't just put a flexible work policy in place and expect it to be adopted without people being penalized for using it because now they're deviating from the prototype. And that's why invariably flexible working fails. We also see it when it comes to processes. You can't just engineer your hiring process to try and exclude all forms of bias because reality is the shared perception is still that success prototype. And I've got great examples of how people do all sorts of cartwheels and gymnastics around hiring processes to try and hire the person who most fits the prototype. The same is true when it comes to practices. So we have to focus on that lived experience. What are the barriers people are encountering? Why are they encountering it? How are we behaving in a way that's aligned to the prototype? And again, the goal with all of this is to have a strategy that addresses all four Ps and most importantly, makes the shift from prototype-based organizations to value-based organizations. So changing our shared perception of what good looks like in organizations. So just some questions to think about in terms of your leadership uh, in organizations. Given that leaders drive culture, culture drives experiences of inequality in organizations, you know, how many leaders in your workplace even understand that their behaviors um, are directly associated with people's experiences of inequality? How many know, know how to lead in a way that's inclusive? You know, do employees know how to practice inclusion by watching what their leaders are doing? Is inclusion embedded into the way the organization functions? And are employees clear about what good looks like or are they relying on the implicit beliefs, you know, that are aligned to that prototype? So that's the shift we need to make. Now, it's normally at this point that somebody will say to me, hey, Michelle, this is all great, but... If we know this, why is it so hard to change? Like what keeps inequality in place? Well, based on my research, it's denial. So in the academic literature, we find when it comes to racism, racial denial is fairly well established. But when it comes to gender, gender denial is a pretty new concept. And it's the idea that, you know, the denial of inequality is really the denial of different lived experiences of organizational life. So when we say it's a meritocracy, everybody experiences workplaces in the same way, we're denying how organizations are hardwired to devalue difference and the fact that individuals have very different experiences of working life depending on the barriers they have to overcome. 
So what we're in denial about an organization is this lived experience. And it shows up when people say, if any of you are having this reaction, that'll be good because you'll be my case example. This is not my workplace. My workplace is a meritocracy. I treat everybody in the same way. You know, I've heard it all before in different organizations we research. And invariably, in those organizations, some of the barriers are most hardwired. The important thing to recognize is when we're tackling inequality, tackling that lived experience is what we need to solve for. And that means getting to know what the barriers are that women face in organizations and how that differs for all women. Getting to understand the challenges that inequality creates to men's fulfillment and men's advancement. In fact, I always say men need equality more than women do. Because when you look at the fact that men are really tied to that outdated work ideal, and the challenges that creates them to be effective today, but more importantly, in the future world of work, where in an innovation economy, you can't really lead in a way that's tied to that 1950s ideal. And the fact that living up to that 1950s ideal costs men. We find greater rates of depression, of mental health, of challenges you know, at work in terms of managing work and home life integration. So there's tremendous difficulties for men in aligning to that prototype. And I just want to reiterate that it's not just about men and women, it's understanding all individuals, regardless of their gender identity and how difference really creates barriers to advancement at work. And so getting to know each individual and treating each individual like a person is absolutely critical today to survive in the post-pandemic workplace, because in organizations where we have to innovate, we need cultures of equality, we need environments that value difference. And there's a great McKinsey study that showed we're increasing diversity in organizations. And as that's increasing, we're decreasing perceptions of inclusion. So we're becoming more diverse, less inclusive. Why is that? Because to harness the value of the diversity in your organization requires leadership. Leaders drive culture, culture drives experiences of inequality. So arguably equality then is an invitation for leaders to lead. And the challenge is, if we don't get this right, is ultimately this is not very good for business because in cultures of equality, research finds employees are six times more likely to innovate. So this is not really about women or men. This is about how do we make workplaces work for everybody because ultimately that's better for business. Importantly, leaders need this way of leading. You can't harness the value of the diversity in your organization if you're not leading in a way that's collaborative, where you can coach employees, provide feedback, manage the challenges of work-life integration, um, you know, really delegate, ensure there's collaboration in the team, ensure people who work for you know how to harness the diversity um, that they're engaging with every day. So we need to fix inequality like our futures depend on it. And I wanted to share, don't panic, I know it's a hideous slide, but I wanted to share one slide with you that is absolutely brilliant because it really demonstrates everything I'm saying on a slide. So I surveyed 735 futurists and I asked them, out of a list of 20 attributes, what are the top five attributes that are required in the future world of work? And that's that pink column there. So you've got things like adapting to change, achieving results, demonstrating emotional intelligence, demonstrating resilience. Then I said, great, out of the same list of 20, what are the top five attributes that women have today? And what are the top five attributes that men have today? Research shows that women have four out of the five capabilities today that are required in the future world of work and men have one. 
Now, that makes complete sense when we think about the success prototype. Men are still leading in a way that's aligned to the prototype. Men need the freedom to be themselves and be valued for that, to have that ambidextrous leadership where they're responding to the environment, depending on what the environment requires. That might be a bit more command and control. It also might be more transformational, right? democratic, inclusive. We all deserve this freedom. And that's really what equality is. It's the freedom to be yourself and be valued for that. So everybody says to me, well, you know, how do we start? Like, what is, you know, when it comes to DNI, how might you start? How might you take what I've shared today and apply that in your organization? I think the starting point is to agree on the principle that equality is a practice. It's something that we do. And so it has to become the way that leaders lead, employees behave, and workplaces work. And if you approach it like a practice, what you'll find, and this is my theory of change based on all this research, is that it pretty much irrespective of what you know solution you're putting in place, it should follow the same experience, particularly for leaders. So you sort of disrupt your denial, you become aware of how inequality works, aware of difference, aware of the barriers. You think about how that's showing up in your workplace, which is understanding is probably the most important part of this whole journey. So how do you apply what I've learned today to your workplace? What is the prototype? What are your four Ps? How's the showing up? And then you take action based on that awareness and understanding. So that is the journey. You cannot jump to action unless you've done the work to understand how is all this playing out in my workplace? What are the barriers women are experiencing? What are the barriers men are experiencing? What are the barriers individuals who don't identify as male or female are experiencing? What is that lived experience of inequality that we're trying to solve for? And with that, I just wanted to share that my philosophy around this is any solutions you put in place, any actions you take, center on this idea that micro practices create macro changes. So when you're looking at how do we take action every day to create an environment that values difference, it starts with thinking about the quality journey. So I'm actually going to send you all or send it to John and he can share it a copy of this slide. This is a leader's journey to creating a culture that values difference. And it starts with the awareness piece. So what does good look like in our workplace? How do we behave in a way that's aligned to that? And how do we make leaders understand that this standard is what they're held accountable for and that that really drives people's experience of your organization? And then how do you get leaders to lead in a way that's aligned to that, but in doing so also encourage employees to do the same? And I've got about five leadership practices that I'm happy to talk through at some point that really drive that. A lot of them are centered on how you manage difficult moments, how you give feedback, are you aware of inequality? Do you understand it? Do you take action every day as a leader to practice it? And then the final piece is then you align the rest of your four Ps to your values, not the other way around. So you align your policies and processes to your values. So hiring against the values, developing against the values, rewarding against the values, promoting against the values. You have a value-based organization. And the final piece, which I'm yet to see an organization do, is really look to embed the values across the business. So how does that become your distinct competitive advantage? What organizations don't understand is equality will either happen to you or you will be leading. It is the way that you're going to outcompete your competitors in an innovation economy because it drives innovation. And so the goal is how do you apply this across your business? How do you integrate this as a business practice? So inclusive innovation as an example or diversified suppliers, you know, across all areas of business. So it becomes a fundamental way of working. So that is how inequality works in a nutshell. And I know we've got a bunch of activities. So I'm going to hand over to John. 
um, to lead us on the next section of today. Um, so, Michelle, I want to unpack a few things before we send folks off um, into their small groups. And it, I, I love that you said a lot. Um, and in our conversations, uh, we, <laughs> we often talk about the nuances of it. But I want to see if I can boil it down just a little bit for some of the folks who are, are participating. One of the things that you and I talk about when we talk about success prototypes is this idea of sort of the, uh, the, the Don Draper approach to defining what leadership looks like. And, you know, I think that concept in its simplicity is, 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 is beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about how Don Draper can epitomize what, what a success stereotype looks like and how it impacts the workplace? Yeah, look, um, so for anyone who's not, who doesn't know what John's talking about, because I haven't brought Don up today. Um, so when our shared perception of what good looks like, that success prototype, I always refer to that as Don Draper. Now, Don Draper is the main character from the TV show Mad Men. And the TV show is about a 1950s, 1960s advertising organization. And Don is literally the epitome of the prototype. So we love talking about the prototype, you know, bringing it into real life. Um, the one thing I want to say before I jump into the prototype is that women can live up to the prototype too. So it's really important to recognize that. Um, so often, you know, and this is quite a challenge for younger women when they look up to sort of leadership level and think, you know, I don't identify with any of that. The challenge for women in living up to it is that it's a lose-lose scenario because if women, even if women align to the prototype and engage in those dominant assertive behaviors, what research finds is they still excluded from male networks, they still isolated, they still face backlash from people um, who they lead. And so, you know, there's almost, again, no right way to be a woman at work. So I always say to women, the very best thing you can do is define for yourself how you want to lead. And I interviewed Jacinda Ardern, who's the New Zealand Prime Minister, the week that she took office. And I said to Jacinda, hey, what do you want to be known for? And she turns to me and she says, kindness. And I was like, come on, Jacinda, like, come on now. And she was like, no, I'm serious. I want to be known as a leader that was kind. I want my government to be known as a government that issued policies that were kind and thought about the whole person. And in all honesty, look at her performance, the way she handled COVID, the way she handled the terrorist attack in New Zealand where 51 people were murdered. And it was kindness. She's now known as a compassionate and kind leader that defied the prototype. So it is possible. I think for men, it's recognizing how the prototype costs them. So it's something that I think for me really upsets me going through the research and seeing that men believe the number one barrier to their advancement at work our DNI initiatives focused on women. So I just want everybody to absorb that. So that's really telling us that, you know, with the, the initiatives we're putting in place, we're excluding men, which is madness. Men, main, you know, maintain the dominant group in organizations. And the connection men need to make is you're not doing this for me, you're doing this for you. Because a more inclusive way of leading is a better way of leading, and you need that to survive and thrive in the future world of work. More importantly, living up to the prototype by engaging in the behaviors associated with it costs you. So it costs you in a number of ways, like there's six key barriers men face, and all of them really punish men. So I think for me, the thing about the prototype is make it personal. Reflect on how are you behaving in a way that's actually aligned to the prototype even if you think you're not, like really do that inventory and ask people who are working for you, hey, how am I showing up um, in a way that's maybe aligned to this? 
you know, what could I do differently to lead in a way that's more values-based? What would that look like? And, and I think this is a really, uh, from my perspective, innovative way of approaching uh, inclusion and diversity. Because what, in essence, I hear you saying is every organization has a success stereotype. Every organization has a stereotype, has this picture of a person who epitomizes success. And every individual has their own success prototype. And the delta between my personal success prototype or the way that I naturally show up and the success prototype of the organization can create that friction. And so part of the journey, I think, the leadership journey that you're talking about is getting folks to kind of recognize those prototypes for success and see how they're positive and negative. I wanted yeah. to ask, I wanted to ask a really specific question of you though, because this is mm-hmm. a thing. Um, you talk about moving from sort of a, a prototype-based organization to a values-based organization. I work at an organization that a lot of people say is very values-based. One of the things that we pride ourselves on is this concept of curiosity and enable and, and, and saying we're rewarding people who are, who are curious. You identified that, that that can be weaponized to some extent. Can you talk a little bit about how values that seem to be agnostic, like curiosity, can be flipped to be weaponized to promote the success prototype or to, 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 to injure folks in not meeting that success prototype. Yeah, so I've got a couple of things to say, even on your first point, um, which is that, so I've worked and lived all over the world, Syria, Libya, Malaysia, America, spent 10 years in America, so all over the world. And based on my experience, success prototypes are pretty um, pretty consistent. So the Don Draper ideal is actually pretty consistent, irrespective of your culture, but that's not good enough, taken on my anecdotal perspective. So based on research, research over the last 30 years has shown irrespective of operating context, irrespective of culture, irrespective of where you're working, when you think of what good looks like, men and women, you're going to think of that Don Draper ideal. To your point on curiosity, why does that matter? Matters because it doesn't actually, irrespective of what values your organization has, invariably organizations weaponize the values to align it to the prototype. So they say, and I know the organization organization around curiosity, in Northern American countries, when I've worked with them on their values, a lot of them will say, look, we're really inclusive, we're really diverse, we take this seriously, and they fancy themselves quite advanced. And then I'll say, okay, what are the values? How do you demonstrate that? And there's really explicit ways you demonstrate the value and invariably that reinforces the success prototype. So one organization, the tech organization I just most recently worked with, and we're talking about curiosity. And one of them said, you know, this really makes me think maybe we are exclusionary because we do in brainstorming sessions, we get out a whiteboard and force everyone to share their idea. And I was like, yes, not only does that not support, you know, cross-cultural differences or individual differences in terms of introversion, extroversion, cultural differences in terms of what's appropriate. I'm a New Zealander. I'm much more likely to sit back, let everyone speak first. Um, It also doesn't accommodate neurodiversity. So neurodiversity, some people need a little bit of time to absorb the question and think about it in order to ideate. So now they're looking at different ways to, you know, enable the value of curiosity, enable the value of innovation, 
but allowing for difference and accommodating difference. So I think to your point, absolutely have the values, but what you want to avoid is being very prescriptive as to how they're displayed. I think what we don't do with values is say, why is curiosity important? So why is curiosity important in your organization? Well, here's why. Okay, great. Like let's have that be outcome focused rather than prescriptive on the behaviors. Um, and that's really the goal with, with values. So I, I think this is an important point to, I think, recognize the pivot that your approach asks leaders to make. It's the pivot from saying, I reward curiosity and curiosity looks like X. Good leaders will say, I reward curiosity and I am eager and hungry to see how curiosity can show up in multiple different ways and recognizing that as a leader, if I can reward people whose curiosity shows up in a bunch of different ways, I'm going to be a better leader because I'm encouraging innovation, but I'm also going to create a culture of equality on my team because the extrovert, extroverts and the introverts will be rewarded for their curiosity, not because they're a curious introvert or a curious extrovert. Is that kind of a fair way to, to, well, and, to think I mean, practically, like if we just think about your average manager in organization, like how do you apply this? Well, let's think about curiosity. What I would do is I would say, what could all the different ways curiosity look like? And then when I'm interviewing somebody, hiring them into my team, I might say, you know, curiosity is one of our values because and share why, right? So why we value it. And then say, tell me a bit about how you demonstrate that. Have you got examples, right? And then when it comes to developing people, great way to give feedback. Hey, curiosity is important to us because of this. We're not seeing those outcomes. So tell us how you're going about curiosity. How are you demonstrating that in your work? Same with promotion. So advancing people based on the values. So I think values in action are probably the most critical weapon companies have to align behaviors to one that values difference. And when leaders clock, like, hey, the values are your friend. They allow you to hire, promote, reward, and value difference in your team and kind of align people to the impact you're wanting them to have through those behaviors, you're golden. But it's just organizations really struggle because they make, you know, eight values and they're corporate and they mean nothing, John. And it's like, you know, nobody can even name the values. Like, Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like culture kills policies and, and the way you act uh, always trumps the thing that you put uh, on your website. And so uh, you and I are right there together. So now I think is a good opportunity for us to kind of let y'all play with the tools that we've just given you around how to become a better leader. And so Akemi is going to put us into, put you, I'm going to hang out here with Richard, Akemi, and uh, Michelle, but Akemi is going to put you in breakout rooms. And this is what I'd like y'all to do in the breakout rooms. It's to begin the process of exploring what real leadership looks like for you and for your organizations. So in these breakout groups, what I'd like y'all to do is I would like y'all uh, uh, to, to answer two questions. And in going about answering these two questions, we want y'all to participate in sort of the dialogue guidelines, right? Which is, you know, be curious about what your colleagues are talking about. Stay involved in the conversation, focus in, on, on what the people in the room are saying, and then make sure everybody's participating. 
make sure everybody has an opportunity to kind of share what their success stereotype is, what their values are. And then above all else, for this to really work and for people to be vulnerable, they have to trust that what they're going to share doesn't leave that breakout room, doesn't leave this session. And so if you make that promise to the folks in the room and to me, uh, I think that this will be a much better and more valuable experience for everyone. So think about these guidelines as you go in and try to tackle these two questions that we want y'all to, 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 uh, to grapple with. I think Akemi is going to send these to you in the breakout rooms, but let me read them to you so that you can appreciate, I think, what we're trying to do. So the first question is, in your organizations, what are your success prototypes? So what are your Don Drapers? What are your definitions of prototypical success in your organization? Can you identify them? Can you describe them? What do they look like? And what's yours? The second question, and I, and I think this one's super fun for me, but the second question is, then can you identify what your company's core values are? Looking at the success stereotypes or prototypes and looking at what the organization's core values are. Are the core values things like curiosity and uh, candor and, and good communication, integrity? And if so, do we allow in your organization people to show those values in a multitude of ways? To show those values in a way that's authentic for them based upon their background or even their culture. And so as y'all look to have the conversations and answer, answer those two questions, after that, we're all gonna come back. I'm gonna poke everyone with a stick like I like to do about what did y'all talk about? Um, some of you I know, some of you I don't. I might call on the people I know, I might call on the people I don't. But the more important aspect of returning from the breakout sessions is to make sure that as a community, we were able to hear what were some of the things that y'all came up with and what were some of the more important takeaways that you might have for us and, uh, uh, and, and others in the room. So with that, Akemi, do you want to drop these folks into breakout on our group? Sadly, we're about at the end of our time. Um, and I want to, before I close off, give Michelle an opportunity to make uh, a, a few parting comments and, and to share her experience this morning. I think um, my main message is, you know, if you're going to take anything away today, recognize that ultimately when it comes to this work, more equal workplaces serve to benefit you. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the work when it comes to leaders, when even DNI practitioners can be super performative. And a lot of it is about being seen to be the right, doing the right thing rather than just doing the right thing. And so what I always say is, you know, someone's really doing the work of equality when they can finish the sentence, a more equal workplace serves to benefit me because in a more equal workplace serves to benefit me, Michelle, because I can be myself. I know I can be valued for that. I can use my difference as an opportunity to advance and contribute rather than viewing it as a barrier to be overcome like in my kitchen example. And I think when you make that connection, you know, I don't know why we're so afraid to make that connection, but when you can make that connection, you're then willing to do the work to build your awareness, to deepen your understanding and to make taking action a daily practice because you recognize 
this isn't about everybody else. This is actually about, you know, me and, and me personally connecting to this work. And I think, you know, across all areas, whether it's anti-racism, whether it's anti-sexism, whatever the area, to date, there's so few leaders who do that. And when they talk about this work, they talk about it in the abstract, like DNI sits out there without realizing, no, no, you are DNI. Leaders drive culture, culture drives experiences of inequality. So why does this matter to you? So that's something I think all of you can think about doing. Thank you, Michelle. I would I would agree wholeheartedly. And um, uh, great transition to what I'm going to challenge folks to do next. Um, you know, one of the things I think is that's important about leadership and important about ALF is to start y'all on a personal journey after getting the context that we just gave. And so, you know, what Akemi and I and, and Richard are going to do after this session ends is we're going to give you, we're going to email you three questions that you should take away and, 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 and solve for yourself as you look to evaluate yourself as a leader. Uh, and, and I want y'all to focus not on the organization and not on the aspirational, but you right now. Ask yourself these questions, sort of what are your success stereotypes? When you think about how you want to show up in your organization, in the workforce or whatever, <laughs> Michelle's values are unfortunately so awesome. We're all going to want to pattern match off of those, but try not to. And really ground yourself in the, when I think of myself as being successful, what does that look like in this environment? And then the next question is sort of, then what are your values based upon that success stereotype? And do those values enable you to create equality? I've worked at Netflix for a little bit. And one of the first things that I did when I got there was took on the mantle of negotiating the way that I work. As lawyers, we're often told this is the only way that one thing can be done. And I left the practice because I didn't like doing those things. And so whenever something came up that my boss or another leader wanted me to do, and if it was going to make my life horrible, I began a process of sort of negotiating that. Tell me what you want me to do this for. And let's see if there's a way that I can do it in a way that's comfortable for me, but still gives you what you want. That is a rare concept but an amazing opportunity to give ourselves. But what that requires we do, again, is it requires us look at what are our values and do the values that we have enable people to have success? Are you gonna be the person that says there's only one way to do this? And so if you're gonna give it to me right, you have to give it to me this way. The last question, and this is a fun one, right? Do your values allow folks that you work with to show up in a way that's right for them. A massive pivot for me when I moved from being an in-house, uh, being at a law firm to being in-house was I got to wear jeans and t-shirts and Jordans every day. That was a massive pivot. If I could have done that at the law firm, I probably would have stayed there a little bit longer. But interestingly, the way I dress when I'm in the office has very little to do with my success and ability to do my job. The only reason I was wearing slacks, button-ups, and loafers to the office was because the white dude who was my boss was wearing slacks, button-up, and loafers. I don't even like loafers. 
but I was wearing them into the office. And so think about that. What are your values? And do the values that you have as a person enable people to show up in the ways that are authentic for them? I think Akemi dropped those three questions in the chat. If you wanna copy and paste and put them in a document, that's great. I think we'll also follow up with a, an evaluation and, and hopefully we can include those three questions as a reminder to y'all. Um, look, I had a blast if you didn't already notice. Thank you so much, Michelle, for kind of carving out 90 minutes of your evening and delaying your dinner to hang out with us ne'er do wells. Um, it was, it was, it's always a pleasure hearing you speak. Um, and hopefully this isn't the last time you can share some of your amazing insights on diversity and inclusion to the folks at ALF. And then for everyone who attended, my goodness, thank you so much. The small group was fun. The conversations was great. Hopefully y'all had an opportunity to learn something good and, and, and new. And please, uh, we're going to send you an evaluation. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you thought about this. E email me feedback. Uh, let me know if there's a way that we can make this better or if there's a, uh, uh, an aspect of this conversation that you would like to continue. Um, we're here to serve leaders, and I think this is one good way for us to do it. With that, I'll give you all your morning back. I'll stick around if folks have questions, but thank you. Thanks, everybody. Have thank a good you. one. Bye. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.